In times like these, you need a Savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus, yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. (coughs) In times like these, You need the Bible in times like these. Oh, be not idle, be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus, yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. In times like these, I have a Savior. In times like these, I have an anchor. I'm very sure, I'm very sure. My anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus, yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. I'm very sure, I'm very sure. My anchor holds and grips the solid Let's take our Bibles again. Turn to the book of Acts. We're right back over there again. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. We're going to read just those uh, seven verses there through verse 60. And then we're going to pick up where we left off again. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. 
Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Again, we have been talking about Stephen over the last few weeks, and we noted his qualifications. We considered his participation. We then took time to discuss his generation. And last week, we talked about his proclamation. Wow, that's a mouthful, isn't it? But tonight, we want to talk about something else, his tribulation, his tribulation. Boy, Stephen was a man of God, and we're pleased that he is and was that kind of man. And, um, you know, we need men like that today, don't we? But the fact is, is that he may have had a powerful message, but as we noted, it wasn't always a good message as far as the world was concerned or even the church. And as a result of that, he's going to note there's some real tribulation in living for the Lord Jesus Christ, that sometimes you're going to have to take it on the chin. Sometimes it's not going to be all a bed of roses. It's not going to be easy or simple. So we don't have to read very much further along right off the bat here. And we know, boy, he's in a mess. And the Bible says in Acts 7, 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now again, cut to the heart. I mean, the bottom line was is that the message that he preached really dug deep. It really got into the, the recesses of their, their soul. I mean, it really, really stabbed into their heart. I mean, it affected them in a very, uh, very concrete manner to the point where they were upset. They were, they were even livid. They, the Bible says here, <clears throat> gnashed on him with their teeth. And that's not very pleasant at all, is it? <clears throat> he goes on in verse 57 Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. I don't know why, but when I think about that verse, I can't help but thinking about here's Stephen sharing the truth. Here's Stephen proclaiming the the gospel or or telling them about, you know, the fact that they themselves were the reason that Jesus Christ, who was God in flesh, was hanging on Calvary, that they are the ones that placed him there, that they're responsible for his death. And boy, I tell you what. When you think about that, and then he tells them not only that, but you were responsible for the death of the men of God that he sent in, 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 in uh, uh, preceding his coming, trying to warn you about his coming, and you killed them too. Boy, I'll tell you what, they were upset, and I see this passage almost like, you know, <clears throat> it says here, and they stopped their ears. And I can almost hear them going, la, 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 la. You know, I can't hear nothing. I hear nothing. That's kind of what I see in my mind. Now, I doubt they were running around going, la, la, la. You know, I don't think they were doing that. But they stopped their ears. <clears throat> and the Bible's saying they basically, they closed their ears. They didn't want to hear what was going on. They had no, no desire whatsoever to continue to listen to this madman. And boy, I'll tell you what, I bet you he seemed like a madman to them too. And it says, and they cast him out of the city. And they stoned him. And uh, we know that uh, ultimately he dies and, you know, well, or he graduates to heaven, however you want to put it. But the bottom line was they think they probably think they won a victory there. Uh, They didn't really win, did they? They didn't win at all. Matter of fact, they were just preparing a young man by the name of Saul who would be called Paul one day. 
It may have seemed kind of crazy at that point. I mean, you think about it. Here he is holding, as it says here, um, this young, you know, he's holding the clothes. Uh, the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet. So here they are down at his feet, and he's kind of, it sounds like, almost like he's responsible to make sure that nobody steals anything. You know, that's the kind of people that Stephen's speaking to, I guess. <clears throat> it's kind of like the church out here. You can't leave anything around the church. Somebody steals it. And I'm not joking. You know I'm telling the truth. Isn't it sad that even at church you can't leave anything sitting without getting taken? Somebody comes wrong and takes it. Isn't that pitiful? But that's the way it was back in Stephen's day, and that's still the way it is today. Someone says, oh, you're joking. No, I'm not joking. No, it happens all the time. Tennis shoes have come up missing. Clothes have come up missing. Coats have come up missing. I mean, things just come up missing. I hung it over here. I thought it was here. Just I hung it up there last week. It's gone. Uh, where'd it go? Yeah, I don't know. Somebody borrowed it. Oh, it's got to be a bus kit. No, it's, it's one of the council. No, it's one of the regulars. <clears throat> they just happened to need a coat that day. You know, I guess more power to them. But anyway, we'll let the Lord worry about that. By the way, if you catch somebody stealing something, why don't you have them put it back? Instead of knowing about it and just doing nothing. You don't have to come to me, but why don't you say to them, hey, listen, I saw you take that and I know it's not yours. Why don't you put it back? Just bring it back and everybody everybody be happy. You know, I know we're going to get in trouble. Just bring it back. That'd be a good thing, huh? <clears throat> okay, but anyway, <clears throat> we don't get too involved. All right, preacher's getting kind of off track, isn't he? Yeah, that kind of stuff hurts, doesn't it? Oh, by the way, I do want to say this uh, about the uh, uh, usher training. Uh, usher and uh, actually it's uh, greeters as well. Uh, I'm, I'm heading that up this year. I'm heading all the, uh, te- all the sessions up this year, all the trainings, I'm doing those. And uh, <clears throat> I really want you to understand what my emphasis is and what my philosophy is on areas. So when you come this Saturday, uh, you know, we're going to talk about philosophy. We're going to discuss and show you what we want. We're literally going to walk through things, and we're going to lay it out, okay? And I'm going to try to help you uh, to, to, to understand exactly what it is we're looking for and what it is we're trying to accomplish in all of this. And so, you know, um, <clears throat> if you do that. And then also with the bus and uh, uh, the Sunday school and, and bus training, I'm going to head that up as well. Um, and, and then also with the nursery training, I'm heading the nursery training up as well. And I'm doing that because I really want you to know my heart in this, okay? I want you to understand what it is we're trying to accomplish, what it is my heartbeat is on, on these areas. Listen, I, I'm very passionate about the areas that we're going to be training on the next three weeks, extremely passionate. Um, and, and, I, and I want you to understand how passionate I am. And the truth is, is that if you're in one of those areas, you need to be equally or more passionate than I am. And if you're not, then what, what's going to happen is eventually it's just going to be kind of like, oh, blah di da da you know? And we need to be fired up about what we're doing. We need to be excited about what God's yeah. given us an opportunity to do. Yeah. And if it's clean in a toilet, you ought to be excited to do that for Jesus. Yeah. I mean, really, you ought to be. You just ought to be. I went in the other day, and I cleaned the bathroom. Someone says, why did you clean the bathroom? Because you weren't there doing it. Somebody had to do it. You weren't here yet, and it was dirty. I thought, before people get here, I, I want it handled. So I cleaned the toilets off, and I cleaned the mirrors off, and I cleaned all. Hey, listen, what's wrong with that? I'm not right. above cleaning a bathroom. Amen. Man, I was excited to do it because I knew one thing. If a visitor walks in that bathroom and smells what I smelled when I walked in, yep. they may not come back. Right. So I'm flushing toilets and I'm making sure things are smelling better. And Hey, I did that and I, I didn't have no problem with that. Listen, you ought to be happy and you ought to be excited to do things for Jesus. Amen. And it's a great thing to serve the Lord. Amen? Yep. 
I don't care if it's cleaning the toilet or if it's ushering or if it's leading somebody to Christ at the altar, whatever it is. Man, we ought to be fired up about that. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, old Stephen was fired up, wasn't he? And it cost him, though, didn't it? That could be discouraging, maybe, if you're not sold out for the things of Christ. But I'll tell you what, there was some tribulation serving the Lord. There just is. And so they took him out and they stoned him. Well, when a person takes a stand for Jesus by believing him, obeying him, and sharing his word, I guarantee you this, you're going to stand out among those in darkness. You're going to stand out. Um, The Bible says in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Uh, Standing out in the darkness will at times make you a target. Did you know that? You know, years ago, again, when I was in the military... You know, they had what they called light discipline. You know, there were times when you were out in the field at certain times at night. And again, I I didn't have to, praise God, I'll be honest with you. I'm glad I didn't have to actually go to war and actually get shot. Now, I've had bullets shot at me before, you know, flying over my head in training times and things like that. But I never literally, you know, was put in harm's way like that, like some of the men in this room have been. And I'm going to tell you something, that would have to be extremely scary. But I'll promise you this. If they taught us, they taught us about light discipline. And you know why they taught us about light discipline? Is at night you cannot put your headlights on. At night you cannot, you know, don't be flicking your, you know, you know, you know. I mean, from 300 yards, some dude just, you know. I mean, a sniper would nail you, you know what I mean? I'm just lighting a cigarette, boss. You know what I mean? That's about how it goes. Because you become a target when you, you're light in darkness. When it's dark out and all of a sudden the light pops up, you can see that for miles away. I mean, and so the truth is, is if you're a child of God today, we're living in a dark world. Let me tell you something. You are the light of the world. So guess what? As soon as you walk out into this world, I promise you, you, you kind of got a bullseye on you because you light up like that. <clears throat> you can become a target real fast. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 3. And yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In John chapter 3, a familiar passage, obviously. No doubt about that. But notice this. That word godly... It was kind of interesting to me. It said, yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And notice what it says in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. So we have this association with evil deeds and darkness, right? Well, then he goes on to say, and this, he goes on, for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, hateth the light, that his, uh, and he goes on to say, um, <clears throat> Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they be wrought in God. So what, what I'm looking at, when I see this, Yea, and all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The, the idea is, is, okay, ungodly deeds or, or wicked deeds, evil deeds, are darkness, obviously. People that... that perform evil deeds. People that do not follow the word of God hate the light. The light is nothing else than a manifestation of Jesus Christ himself. And guess who you have living in you? Jesus Christ. So guess who they're going to hate? 
So I promise you, if you're living for Christ, if you're truly living for Him, I mean, the deeds that you perform, the things that you do reflect Him. I'm not talking about the fact that you're just a Christian in name. Okay, you could be a Christian and not reflect the image of Christ or the, the, the person of Christ. But if you legitimately are living your life in a way that is holy and pure and you're seeking to, to, to be the kind of person that Jesus Christ was and you're, you're demonstrating those kind of actions and attitudes, then guess what you become? Light in a dark place. And guess who hates the light? Those that, have, that do evil deeds. You're going to become a target. Man, I'll I, I tell you what. There was nothing wrong with the message that Stephen was preaching. There was nothing wrong with the man, Stephen. He had no reason why anybody should want to hurt or harm him in any way. The problem was, the only problem he had was that he was shining in a dark place. That's, all, that's why he was being persecuted. That's why they gnashed on him with their teeth. That's why they dr- took him on out of the city and stoned him, because he was light in a dark place. Now listen, you can be darkness in a dark place as a believer. You don't have to shine. Listen, you, you can go right out and do the same evil deeds that the world does and still name the name of Christ. Say, well, I'm, I'm saved at least. I'm on my way to heaven. And you know what? I'm not going to debate, nor will I argue whether or not you're saved. That's between you and the Lord. But let me tell you this. You don't have to shine in darkness. You can live and act and look like the world, and you can be just as obscure as they are in the night. But I'm going to tell you what, you start to shine. You, you, you flick your beck a little bit. In the midst of darkness, just like that, you show up. Remember Christmas Eve or Christmas night we were here. And remember Christmas night we had that, that uh, candlelight service. But I'll tell you what, those little candles just lit up in the darkness. It's amazing. You become a target. And you know what? Stephen was a target. Now... <clears throat> Obviously, then, if we're going to live godly, then there's no way, according to the Bible, to avoid all persecution. But we have been extremely blessed in America, though. Blessed with a freedom to worship God according to our conscience. But throughout history, that hasn't always been the case, though. That hasn't been the case at all. Do you know the Jewish believers, as we noted already in in Scripture, were persecuted and martyred by both Judaism and pagan Rome? It wasn't just Rome that persecuted them. It was Judaism also. Their own people persecuted them. The faith that they were saved out of persecuted them. Judaism and paganism. We're reminded in the book of Acts of the Apostle Paul. And, of course, he was a witness to the martyrdom of Stephen. We saw that right in our passage earlier. So he watched Stephen be martyred. He, he observed it. He's seen it. And, and then we're reminded in Scripture of his relentless effort to eradicate Christianity. I mean, he did everything he could to literally eradicate faith, to do away with it in the world in which he lived. He would have been more than happy at one point in his life to never hear the name of Jesus again. And may I say that we have a culture and a society that has that same desire to eradicate the very name of Christ in our culture. There's nothing different, nothing new. Surprisingly to most is 
the faith marched on, it would be those who claimed to be Christian who would shed the greatest amount of believer blood. The passing of the apostles seemed to invite apostasy. We know as we read through the book of Second Timothy, or First Timothy, as we studied that book, we, we note that Paul the apostle obviously was concerned about apostasy even while he was living. But he knew without a doubt the moment he come off, went off the scene and others like himself left the scene, the church was certainly going to be battling for their very life and existence. Over the next few hundred years, the church would endure a steady diet of persecution and martyrdom. If you've ever read the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you've only read the first couple chapters, you just sit there and in amazement of what men and women of God legitimately faced in their lifetime. It is just beyond comprehension. And for that 200 years or so, <clears throat> that's exactly what Fox's Book of Martyr early on was dealing with. Then came Constantine, who claimed to be a champion of Christianity. Constantine was a Roman emperor around 325 A.D. He would uh, demand that those that were conquered by him and his nation, that they would confess Christ. We know, however, that true Christianity is the byproduct of a legitimate offer. And an offer that provides a choice to the taker. It's not one that says, guess what? You name the name of Christ. You say that you trust Jesus or you die. That, that's not Christianity as we understand it, or biblical Christianity. So, Constantine's method may have done wonders for the stat sheet, but it fell miserably short of producing genuine faith. As a result, the church house was comprised of a number of people who were not even saved. And as a result of that composition, it made it necessary for the church to incorporate and include pagan practices into worship in order to appease the people. So now we had a church now that has unsaved people in it that want to adopt and practice pagan practices. So here we are, you're a pagan now, and you have to trust Christ, so to speak, or become part of the Christian church because, well, your conqueror says so. And now we have churches where there are lost people and there are pagans have gathered together. There might be scattered throughout some true believers, but the fact was is that ultimately compromise came. So they adopted pagan practices in the church house. <clears throat> there were those who would not compromise themselves. They would not compromise their faith. They would not compromise their stand. They wouldn't compromise their belief at all. They wouldn't bend, nor would they break. Therefore, they would not join what would ultimately become the state church or a church that would be known as the Catholic church. And those who would not join that state church, those that wouldn't adhere to its edicts and councils, they were identified, they were labeled as being heretics and enemies of the cross. They'd be hunted down, tortured, maimed, and murdered, even massacred in numbers in the name of religion. And then came Martin Luther about a thousand years later. 
He opposed the Catholic Church. He opposed its authority. He opposed its doctrine. He pointed to the corruption that had weaved its way into the Jesuit order as well as the priesthood itself. He, along with other reformers, began to try and reform the Catholic Church, try and change it and try to make it bend toward the Word of God just a little bit more, make it a little bit more biblically sound. Their efforts were futile, however. But as a result of their efforts, others began to, to leave and depart from the Catholic Church. Anabaptists, that's where they show up. They offer to help the Reformers. Remember, these Anabaptists have never integrated into the Catholic Church. They never once became part of it. They remained separate from it. This idea that you're either Protestant or you are Catholic is not true. That's not true at all. There were groups throughout history who never allowed themselves to compromise with the state church, did not become part of or join in with it. And as a result, they are the ones who were persecuted. They were the ones who were murdered. They were the ones who were massacred, literally by the hundreds of thousands. It is estimated that over 50 million people lost their lives because they would not submit to the Catholic Church. Isn't that amazing? And you wonder why the world says religion is, has been the worst thing ever in the history of human, humanity. In a sense, they're right. It's killed more people than any war has. So Anabaptists, they helped, offered to help the Reformers. The Reformers, of course, created waves in the Catholic Church. And in many cases, they were shut out irreconcilably too. There came a point where they weren't even permitted back. I mean, it was just, you know, you've gone so far, enough's enough. But here's the thing. Even though they were no longer part of the church, these reformers errantly continued with unscriptural practices like infant baptism and sprinkling. They would not get rid of certain practices and certain traditions that they had learned while in that particular church. And as a result, the Anabaptists and other independent groups removed their support, stopped supporting these reformers, and began to distance themselves from them. We call that ecclesiastical separation. Amen. What we mean by that is simply this. You may be religious and I may be religious. You may call yourself a Christian and I can call myself a Christian. We may all say we're part of the church of Jesus Christ. But the fact is, is that based on your doctrine, based on your position in the Word of God and your actions and your attitude, we choose as a church to separate ourselves because you have yet to adopt the biblical pattern. There are things you are doing that are unscriptural, unscriptural and unsupported in the Word of God, like infant baptism. What's the point of baptizing an infant according to the Bible? There is no reason. It's mere tradition of men. Serves no purpose whatsoever. Well, so therefore, the, 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 the reformers continued in this vein. 
Oh yeah, they had, they had come away a little bit. They had allowed themselves to embrace biblical truth. Uh, I can't remember how they put scripturalists. I'm trying to think what the first phrase is. But basically, scripture only is what they would say. It's scripture only. It's scripture only. And they were right about that. The reformers were correct. Scripture only. The only problem was they did not abide by their saying. There were aspects of their, of their, their theology that were still rooted in Catholicism. And so these separatists, like Anabaptists said, we will not support you. We cannot come alongside of you because you haven't gone far enough away from the Catholic Church. You're still bound by its tradition. And boy, what happens when light is in darkness? Uh Uh-oh. As a result, the Reformers, who had at first been sympathetic to the Anabaptist plight, Remember, the Anabaptists are dying for their faith. These reformers who had initially invited their help even found themselves attacking them even as the Catholic Church had been doing all along. So now the reformers are attacking them. Even Luther, the spark of the Reformation, turned against the Anabaptists. In his book, Anabaptist, Neither Catholic Nor Protestant, William McGrath states, here's what he says, Sadder yet, Luther reacted with equal violence to the Anabaptists who tried to apply the principle of liberty to themselves. You can remember, Luther's trying to claim liberty from the Catholic Church. But now he, because they're not supporting him anymore, He reacts with equal violence to the Anabaptists who try to apply the principle of liberty to themselves. Though he knew, he goes on, there were both non-resistant, harmless Anabaptists as well as radical fringe of social revolutionaries, he condemned altogether, favoring a policy of extermination. Isn't that interesting? So now we have a reformer who has tried to say, I have liberty to, to, to follow my conscience and to serve God. But on the other hand, you Anabaptists, I still hate your guts and all of you need to die. So we're going to kill every one of you. Martin Luther was a great religious leader. And he's elevated and lifted up by even people in many circles. Let me tell you something. I'm not a real fan of him. He killed my forefathers. I'm glad he put that 93 thesis on the wall. But I can tell you this much. He didn't do a whole lot for us in the end, except murder and kill us. Somebody says, well, that's a pretty bad attitude. Well, how would you feel if he killed your mom or dad? As far as I'm concerned, they're our forefathers. He sounded like Stephen again, talking to the council. By the way, uh, your forefathers killed all the prophets. Well, he was one of those that were killing the true faith, those that believed in it. The Anabaptists sought freedom of religion throughout Europe, and they found little, if any. And I mean they died by the thousands and the thousands. Then came the pilgrims. They came in search of a new land. Now, hold on. You got to be careful. They came in search of a new land seeking prosperity and religious freedom. It wasn't all just religious there was a big element. I mean, they searched out the new world because, I mean, people were searching out the new world, not just to get, it wasn't like everybody wanted religious freedom. No, that wasn't the only reason people came to America. They wanted to succeed and they wanted to get rich. But there were those that came specifically for the purpose of finding 
their hope in a freedom that would permit them to worship as they, their conscience said. So they did come to America, and they did seek out religious freedom. But it's interesting again. Sadly, the very men and women who journeyed across the Atlantic in search of religious freedom established settlements and colonies that, strangely enough, (laughs) this is interesting, denied the very freedoms to others that they themselves left England in search of. So they they were not happy that in England they could not worship as they chose, that the government was oppressive, that the government was trying to say, you have to be part of the Church of England. And what do they do? They go to America in search of religious freedom, but their own freedom. And so they walk into little towns and villages and they they erect their buildings and they call them congregational churches or whatever churches you want to call it. And they say, okay, everybody in the town has to be a congregationalist. Everybody has to go to this church. Everybody has to give their tithes to this church. Everybody has to worship in this church. And if you don't, we're going to persecute you. If you don't, we'll beat you. If you don't, we'll send you out of town without any of your property, and you can fend for yourself in the wilderness. They banished people even, and they even killed some. Isn't that something? The very ones who left England because the church, the government, was trying to tell them who and how they had to worship are the very ones who then imposed their will and said, you will worship the way we deem it. That's something. As a result, godly men and women were ostracized. They were banished. They were beaten for their faith. And the fact is, is that it was the ruling function or faction that established the rules. They determined what and how you would worship if you lived in their community. So it wasn't until our Constitution and Bill of Rights was implemented that religious freedom became a protected right. Do you understand what happened? Baptists inserted their views, men like Mr. Locke and others, and said, listen, it's not enough to have a First Amendment. We need to protect the rights of religion and faith in our country. We cannot allow the government to step in and tell people how they have, they, they have to worship. People have to have a right to worship whomever they choose wherever they want and however they choose. They have to allow, men have to be willing, women have to be permitted, I should say, men and women to worship according to their conscience. No government can get involved in religious worship like that. Imposing their will. You will be a Muslim. You will be a Christian. You will be a Church of Christ. You will be a a whatever. No, the government is not permitted to insert their will over the people. The people are, according to our Constitution, based on how we designed it, we were permitted and given the right to religious freedom, which meant no one can tell us how to worship. And that's why this whole thing about the separation of church and state has been switched. It's not about faith impacting society. It's about government impacting faith. That's what it's always been about. But, the, of course, liberals switch it around and make you feel like you're a bad person for wanting to witness and tell people about your faith as though you're not allowed 
to lead others to Christ. You're not allowed to enforce, or uh, should I say, or, or in- insert your faith in your position and your particular feelings toward this issue. That's ridiculous. That has nothing at all to do with what the Constitution writers had in mind. Matter of fact, if you really look at it, and, and again, you know, uh, I almost wish I could shut this off for just one second. The fact was, is that they permitted people, the Second Amendment right to have bare arms, was so government could never become strong enough to dictate to the people instead of the people dictating to government. That was the real purpose of it. See, again, we've lost all of this. And so what's it do in the end? It hinders and hampers the faith. That's what it ultimately does. So the freedom to worship God according to one's conscience has been one of the fundamental and foundational rights of every American now. Still, the truth is that throughout history, those who would stand for Christ and the Word of God were severely persecuted and even martyred for the faith. You know, in America, let's face it, where we live today, it is extremely hard to imagine what it would be like facing religious persecution, even death on a daily basis. We can't imagine that. I mean, honestly, we can say, man, if that was going on, I would, and if that, they did, I would, and we have no concept of that kind of life yet. Yet we just have no concept. As safe and protected as we have been to worship freely without fear of persecution, the truth is, is that the rest of the world has been threatened and exposed to hostility for it. Believers living in other countries that are still being denied, are still being denied the right to worship. They're denied the right to worship according to conscience. No, those that are living in Muslim influence or strict Catholic doctrine, places where those things are implemented, man, I'm going to tell you something. They're experiencing persecution. They experience persecution for their faith. It's extremely dark, and so when the light shines, they're targets. Religious freedom is not very widespread, is what I guess I'm saying. It's been the exception rather than the rule for much of the world throughout history. We have been blessed in America to be able to worship according to our conscience without fear of repercussion. But that is not the norm. And may I say that what's going on in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen has been normal for most of human history. Do you realize that? What we understand to be normal is not normal. It isn't normal. It's it's just, we have been so blessed. For the last 200 and... 38 or 40 years, whatever it's been, we have had an America that has said, listen, you are protected in your area of worship. You can serve and, and, and kneel down to whomever, whatever you want. You want to kneel down to a rock? Go ahead. It's America. You want to worship some, create a name for a God. Worship him. Worship her. Whatever you want to do. You want to worship Satan in America, you're permitted to do so. It's America. But may I say, let us not forget that we have equal right to worship our God. We don't have to shut our mouth. and We don't have to unashamedly proclaim Him. We don't have to hide under a rock or in our basements and talk about Jesus. Let me tell you something. We can talk about Him as freely as we choose. But that hasn't been the case in most countries of the world. 
for his, throughout history. In 2 Timothy, again, chapter 3, verse 12. Turn there, if you would, one more time. We see the tide changing. And as believers, we are hopeful that there has been a reprieve with our new president coming in soon. That at least he recognizes our right as Christians to worship according to our conscience. So it seems, but we are not guaranteed that. We will see how this pans out. We knew what we had under the last regime. We knew what we would have under Hillary's regime. Hopefully under Donald Trump, will at least be protected to continue to serve our Lord without fear of persecution by our government. And we'll be able to say that it's still wrong to perform homosexual acts. It's still wrong for men to go into female bathrooms. Hopefully we'll see a president's willing to stand up and take a biblical position on some issues. It's going to be very difficult for him. But we need to pray that he will do so and hopefully hold back the tide for at least four years. Give us another opportunity to reach people that we haven't reached yet. Second Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Even in the place that we live in America today, there's still darkness. And we're going to have targets on our back, just like Stephen did, if we'll live godly. In John 15.18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Thank you, Lord. That really brings us great comfort. But it's true, isn't it? John 15, 25. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Had no reason to hate Jesus, did they? Never hurt or harmed anybody, did he? If anything, he did only good things. He went around healing people, helping people, giving them hope. And they killed him. What can we expect? So... We can't take our freedom for granted, I guess is what we're saying, seeing and saying. How much longer will it be before we're charged with acts of treason and executed for naming the name of Christ? I don't know. could be a long time. It may not be as long. But we know there's a judgment coming in which each and every one of us are going to give an account for the things we've done. You know, we can't afford to waste a single opportunity to propagate and to proclaim and to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't do that. We can't waste that opportunity. Stephen would give his very life, ultimately, for the sake of the gospel. And you know what? He did it gladly. You want to know why? In expectation of what lie ahead. That's why he did it. He believed in the future. He believed there was a place called heaven. And there was a God named Jesus Christ who was on the throne. Matter of fact, he stood at that moment in history to receive him. Now, let me ask you a quick question as we close. A couple quick questions. Number one, is God good? Resounding, amen. I know that. I know everybody's going to say, amen. Let me ask you this. Was God good in Stephen's day? If that is the case, if God was good in Stephen's day, you know, allowing him to be gnashed upon, 
for no reason other than that he proclaimed the truth and he believed in the Lord Jesus. If God was good to let those people stone him outside the city, if God was good to let his family go without a daddy, his children without a father, his wife without a husband, if God was good to permit that in his life and his family, if that's the case, then obviously God's goodness is not measured by our comfort, is it? His goodness isn't measured by our comfort then. I want to tell you what, that is a big, big truth that has to be addressed in America. We are forever questioning our God's goodness, especially in the midst of uncomfort, discomfort. Well, every time we look at the Word of God, it seems somebody's suffering. And we will on the surface and in a pew or in a seat cry, God's good. But the very moment we're uncomfortable, the flesh wants to say what? I'm just saying this. Obviously, God's goodness is not proportionate to our comfort. So let me ask you then finally, and I want you to think about this after we've left. If His goodness is not measured by our comfort, then what is it measured by? What makes Him so good then? Just because I have a nice car and I know I'll get home safely, is that what makes God good? I mean, I thought that Stephen, if Stephen was measuring God's goodness based on how life went that day in his life, I'll tell you what, God wasn't very good. But we know God's good. So how do we measure God's goodness then? How do we measure it? If it's not based on comfort, what is his goodness based on? And I want you to think about that through the next few days. You know, if his goodness is not measured by our comfort, then what is it measured by? That's a good question, isn't it? And I want you to think about that. Because you know what? There's not one of us, if we live godly, won't be uncomfortable before it's over with. We better understand how his goodness is measured. Because instead of looking up to God and thanking God for the privilege of suffering, we are going to turn around and question God for suffering. If we don't understand how his goodness is measured. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time together. And Lord, thank you for the people of God. And Lord, help us to ponder that simple thought. Lord, it's a, it is thought-provoking. And Lord, it's, uh, it's, I don't know, Lord, it can be very difficult in our lives. And 